Well, I was gone last week. It's good to be back. Missed you guys. I uh, spent a week in Tennessee with three of my favorite people. Um, we, a couple years ago, walked the Camino for the first time and met these three ladies from Nashville that we totally just fell in love with. And they all summer at this... I guess summering is a thing you do. I mean, everybody in Laguna just goes to Europe apparently this summer. But, um, but, but there in, you know, in Nashville, it's like 105 degrees and super humid. So they all go up like in summer in this little kind of mountain town up there called Mont Eagle. And they, so I learned about this, uh, Chautauqua. Has anybody heard of this? Okay. So yeah, I, I think here on this coast, we don't really do this. Um, but on the East Coast, there's a number of these places, which is like an intentional spiritual community. And so what they do is, it's a, a Christian faith tradition, but they bring in kind of an ecumenical thing where they bring in pastors from, you know, all different lines and denominations um, to speak for the week. So I was the pastor in residence last week, and uh, like we just sat on porches basically all week and chatted with our friends and this, I mean, that's what you do, right? You like sit on a porch when you're in the South. And uh, anyway, just such, these people to me are three of the most joyful people that I know. Um, all the hospitality there was wonderful. But as a visiting pastor, you know, you like start to get to know people and then you have this like time aside, set aside where I could just meet and chat and get to know them a little better. And um, and sure enough, you find that underneath all that joy, in every single story, is struggle, is pain, is things that everybody is carrying. And I was struck by just the the basic human experience of struggle, that some of the most joyful people that I met are walking through some dark places right now. And reaching out for somebody to come alongside them and walk with them through that space. And um, realizing as a church, this is so what we do, is, is come alongside each other. That every single person, if we went around and asked each one of you, what are you carrying right now? What are you struggling with? Every person here could answer that question, I think. And this idea that we're... Not finished. Did Lily sang that in one of the songs this morning? That I'm not finished is one of the things to me that helps make sense out of this and what we're here to do. That all of us are here not just to savor the joys of life, but to grow. That there's a work that is happening in us. And this verse in James, you've heard so many times, but I'm going to read it for us again today, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And this process goes our whole lives. I don't care how old you are. You're still in it. Still in it, Gil. (laughs) Just teasing. Well, you you are still in it. (laughs) Yes. We're just not finished ever in this, that we're constantly going through this deep work to make us steadfast. And I think it's such an interesting idea that that perfection, completion is somehow equated with endurance, with steadfastness. 
I think so that we can be successful, right? So that we can be accomplished, so that we can receive finally the glory we deserve. And that's not really what the assignment is, is it? It's about a a slower, deeper work taking place in our hearts, making us steadfast. And I like that word. I feel like it, it has a lot of the same texture as like integrity, right? That there's a a purifying that's happening within us of our motives, of our ego, of those fears and anxieties that constantly trouble us. That these things are being slowly worked out of us. And it's not so much in the joys as much as it's in the struggle. A friend of mine wrote a book on tempering. And to me, it's been really helpful in like understanding this process that, that you take metal. Are you familiar with tempering? It's, it's basically where you take metals and, and heat them to extreme heat and then you pound it, right? Over and over and over. And then you cool it and then you heat it again to extreme heat and you pound it and pound it and pound it. And what this does to metal, it changes it. It changes it in its like very essence. It makes it stronger and it makes it more flexible. And it's such an interesting combination of two things, right? The flexibility, there's a softening and a hardening. But but the reason you need that, I mean, if, if you're going to have a tool that you're going to use, say, to dig rock with, it, it can't be too hard, because you'll just shatter it, that the strength of that creates almost a brittleness to it. That the flexibility is also part of it. This is how you can make a metal spring that lasts forever, right? It's got all this sort of flexibility built in. How do you do that? Through tempering. And so steadfastness, that kind of is a lens, because again and again throughout Scripture, this idea of fire (laughs) refining, right? And we think of that mainly through getting rid of impurities, But often we don't see how it's tied to this strengthening in us. Making us not just strong, but flexible, softening our hearts at the same time. And in our lectionary reading, we've been looking at this story of Jacob and uh, going through this section of Genesis. And um, again, I I love this about scripture that uh, it's so honest about its people. They're all of us broken, right? This God is letting these people carry forward the blessing, but they're deeply flawed. And you get the feeling that that even in that, the depth of the lesson is seen through the flaws, through the journeys that they're taking. And Jacob is this man with deep insecurity, He's second born and lives with this constant inferiority of his brother. But he's got this prophecy spoken over him that even though he's the second born, he is going to be the one that the blessing is carried through. And this breaks with custom, it breaks with tradition, but it's something that God apparently decided he was going to do. We don't necessarily know why. But in that switch, in that going against culture, you have a problem, a dilemma that's created because Isaac, his father, loved him, Esau, his older brother, more than Jacob. So already you see this broken family system right there. 
and you see this coveting of Jacob, of his brother, his brother who fits all the strong manly characteristics, right? He's, he's strong, he's aggressive, he's impulsive, he's kind of shallow, and he's violent. He's just this big brute of a guy, but kind of fits the bill of what we often respect. Jacob is smaller. Jacob likes tents. He likes to be indoors. And his mother loves him more than Esau. And so with this prophecy that she's received, they do what people do. They basically say, well, here's God's promise. How do we take and twist that in our own way to make it our own? How do we make this thing actually come about, right? And what we find is that Jacob, in his insecurity, becomes um, really conniving, He basically fools his brother out of his birthright, lies to his father to steal the blessing. He's just sort of a shady guy. And this is the one that God has trusted. And when Esau realizes that he's been fooled, he, like Esau does, says, you're dead, right? Like, I'm going to kill you. And Jacob ends up fleeing to his uncle's house, Laban. And there kind of fills two purposes. He's able to find a bride. Actually, he gets two brides because Laban, his uncle, tricks him. But he also is able to avoid his brother Esau. And there in this place, Jacob starts building wealth. He starts accumulating. And even there, right, he he gives this like feigned humility where his uncle's like, well, you know, you're doing this work and I'd like to see you have some of this for your own. And Jacob's like, hey, let me, I'll just take the blemished animals. Do you know this part of the story? Give me just the spotted ones. And you see Laban like, okay, whatever. Sure, you can have the spotted lambs. Except that Jacob then starts crossbreeding them with the strongest ones. And he does this like he puts the food out by his lambs. And so the stronger ones come and breed. And pretty soon Laban doesn't have any sheep left. And Jacob has all of them. So spotted but really strong. And, you know, again, I I tell that story because you're like, this guy, everywhere he goes, he prospers and also breaks things deeply. He ends up having to flee Laban. But... Another prophecy comes or another word from God where God tells Laban, hey, let him go, right? That that my blessing continues to be on Jacob. Let him go, make peace. And so Jacob takes all this wealth that he's accumulated and his family and goes home. And as he's going, he knows what he's approaching. He's approaching his enemy. And as we look at Jacob, I I mean, let's take this for a moment and think about this for yourself, right? Jacob has got this strategy, this approach to life. And um, my hunch is so do you. That all of us have figured out how to sort of survive. Where we've got backup plans or we've got ways that we navigate. We have ways that we appease or whatever that is to, to get a sense of value for ourselves. There's this um, uh, personality test, I guess you could call it, called the Enneagram. How many of you have heard of the Enneagram? Okay, so I've got a few friends that are like, they just think it's just a bunch of bunk. So, um, But I think it's really interesting, the Enneagram, because it looks at something specific that kind of most personality tests don't. It sort of looks at your survival strategy. 
the Enneagram is, is rooted around this idea of like your core fear. What are you afraid of? And how have you through life learned to compensate for that fear? Isn't that interesting? So it, it reveals something in us that's not like our strengths or our personality. It reveals our brokenness. And so anyway, I just am going to give you a quick little rundown of the core fears of the Enneagram. And I don't, it doesn't matter if you know which number you are. That's not really what we're going for here. But they break it into these nine categories. But look at this, like a perfectionist, a servant, an achiever, an individualist, an investigator, a loyalist, an enthusiast a challenger, a peacemaker, all of these have value, don't they? I mean, all of these, you think of that description and you go, oh yeah, a servant. Who doesn't want a friend that's a servant, right? But but what's behind it and what you see there, a perfectionist and their perfection is trying to keep from being wrong. Any perfectionists out there? <laughs> see you in the back, Chuck. Um, the servant Afraid of being unwanted, unlovable, the achiever being not valued or admired. That's what Patty is, by the way. <laughs> the individualist being without significance or meaning. That's me. Um, the investigator being invaded or overwhelmed. The loyalist being without support or security. The enthusiast being deprived of emotional support. The challenger being controlled. The peacemaker being separated or overlooked. And, and this is not to say, oh, the Enneagram is, reveals all this, but it's so interesting that you find everybody can probably dial down to one of these that's at your core, that you sort of formed your whole shtick around. I'm the one who performs. I'm the one who always helps. I'm the one who always has something interesting to say, right? These ways of dealing with our fear. And often in a way that's unhealthy. It's interesting. If you go to the next slide, they have um, kind of coupled with this the deeper desire, a, a sort of longing, longing to be good, longing to be wanted and loved. It's interesting. The person achieving is longing to be loved simply for who they are. The one who wants to be seen as individual <laughs> wants to be loved just simply for who they are. Your needs for the five are not a problem. For the six, you're safe. You'll be taken care of. You will not be betrayed. Your presence matters. And I say all this because, you know, as I look at Jacob, I think, I I don't know enough about the Enneagram to say what Jacob is, but I kind of think maybe an achiever. Like he's, he's constantly trying to prove that even though his brother is bigger and stronger and maybe even better looking, He's got value, right, as the second born. So he accumulates all this wealth, but he does it in ways that reveal his brokenness, reveal his deep insecurity. Jacob burns bridges everywhere he goes in this sort of broken way of coping with his insecurity. And as Jacob starts getting to home, he's aware that he's coming to face his enemy. And he stands there on the edge of this river, realizing on the other side lies Esau. And sure enough, rumor comes that Esau's on his way with 400 men. And Jacob knows, like, he's, he's got no excuse. So the strategist, he, he basically splits everything up in two and goes, well, 
when Esau comes, he's, we're only going to let him take half, right? So we'll split our group up into two, and either he'll attack one and the other can flee or vice versa. But then what I'm going to do, Jacob sends all his, like all these gifts to Esau, herds and et cetera, and money, these ways to try to appease his brother. And he says, tell him your servant Jacob sends these. He is hoping to sort of soften his brother's heart. And lastly, he takes his family. He's got 11 sons at this point, not all 12 yet. And he sends his wives, Leah and Rachel, away and finds himself at this place alone. In verse 22, it says, That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. And, and I was talking with a lady this last week, and she was talking about she practices this way of reading scripture that I think is credited to Ignatius, where you just sort of imagine yourself in the story. Have you ever done this? Like, where, where are you in the story? Can you visualize it? Can you see it? Here, his wives and his kids leave. He's all alone standing there in the dark. And as I was thinking about this, I kept kind of hearing a soundtrack to it. I was sort of picturing it like a musical. And so here's the song that kept coming. I'm just going to play you a snippet of it and see if you recognize it. Do you know this one? Anybody? Yeah. It's from Hamilton. We're not going to listen to the whole thing. Such a good song. You can stop it there. Like, love doesn't discriminate. It takes and it takes and it takes, is the line. This is sung by Aaron Burr, who's like kind of the anti-hero of the play. And Aaron Burr has got this fixation, as we know, on Hamilton. We know how the story ends from history. But you see him here. He starts off like justifying an affair that he's having. And he does it by talking about, hey, like love is... It's arbitrary. It just sort of shows up. It just sort of takes. And I'm going to take this man's wife for myself. But as the song goes on, he talks about the legacy that he's received from his grandparents and how they left him with all this responsibility. And he goes into this, like, death doesn't discriminate. It takes and it takes and it takes. Moves from there into who he is. He says this line, he says, Aaron Burr, I'm the one thing in life I can control. I am an inimitable, inimitable. I'm an original. I'm not falling behind or running late. I'm not standing still. I'm lying in wait. And then he shifts in this song to Hamilton. He says, Hamilton faces an endless uphill climb. He has something to prove. He has nothing to lose. Hamilton's pace is relentless. He wastes no time. 
What is it like in his shoes? And, and I, I'm picturing this because here's Jacob, totally vulnerable, fixated on Esau, the one who he's measured his whole life based on. He's seen his whole worth through a comparison to his brother and lived in this inferiority and lived out all this brokenness, poured that out on others, cheated other people out of what was rightfully theirs. And in this place, he's justified it because he views the world as like just cold, arbitrary. It just takes. And Jacob's this survivor, but, but here he is in this place of his brokenness alone. And I think he must be terrified. He's going to meet his enemy and he's prepared for what might come, prepared for an attack. But interestingly enough, Jacob in this place of brokenness is attacked. And as he's standing there in this place, kind of from behind, comes an unknown figure and grabs him. And I can imagine if you're Jacob, you're like, oh no, Esau. And in our passage, it says, a man wrestled him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And Jacob, I think, takes all this fear, all this insecurity. And as he gets attacked, he turns around and he fights with everything that he has. He fights all night, which tells you that they're equally matched. Kind of goes from Hamilton all of a sudden into like John Wick, where they just pound each other all (laughs) night long. Like, how can somebody get punched that many times, right? They fight all night. And Jacob wins. Barely. Jacob's able to kind of get the advantage here and holds him. And this person that he's fighting, who he doesn't know, He's looking, he can't even see his face. I imagine it's like pitch black in this fight. And all of a sudden, Jacob is saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. All of a sudden, I think he's starting to understand there's something way more going on here. What I love about this um, is that it says uh, the man touches him on his hip socket and his hip goes out. Which, has anybody had like a dislocated anything? It's horrible. I used to have a knee that like when I was younger would go out and it was like so uncomfortable, but it's like debilitating pain. And Jacob realizes, oh, that he's been fighting against somebody all night who he's equally matched with until this person just lays his hand on his hip and knocks it out of socket. And realizes that who he's been fighting with has been restraining himself all night. It reminds me of like Kung Fu Panda where he's all skadoosh. Do you remember this part? Just touches him, bink, like knocks the hip out of socket. And Jacob is in immediate pain. He goes from being the victor to the loser in this place, but won't let go. And you could see just the turmoil in this situation. Jacob realizes now that he's up against a power that's so much more greater than him. But in that part, he just clutches on with everything he's got. 
And he insists on the blessing that he's tried to take for himself over and over and over and cheat and fool and like figure out how to accumulate all this wealth and all this stuff. And he's like, none of it is enough. All of it is broken and realizes he has an opportunity to speak to an angel or whoever this is and ask for the real blessing that he's longing for. It says, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answers. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. It's interesting, right? Like that this, you know, people would say this is potentially a theophany. This is potentially God himself wrestling here, revealing this awesome power to Jacob. And as Jacob asks for a blessing, what does God do? He speaks right to his identity. And Jacob's been carrying this name, right? It's like this inferiority is built into the name itself. The one who follows behind is his name. And God renames him something deep and true and powerful about him. The person who God sees in him. A wrestler. And I think God says it with such like warmth, like you are the one who didn't give up. He has been the one who has endured in this fight as broken as it is all the way along. Jacob has discovered something and in this God gives him a new name. I wonder if when we think about longings, how it's connected all the way down to our identity, all the way down to our name. Those names matter so much. And in this fight, I think it's fascinating because we see a side of God, this relentless side of God that wants to be wrestled with. Like a God that's saying, come after me, come get me. There's a quote from Richard Rohr where he says, in the first half of life, we fight the devil and have the illusion and inflation of winning now and then. In the second half of life, we always lose because we are invariably fighting God. Isn't that interesting? This is what Jacob has been fighting all along is not Esau, not Laban. He's been fighting himself and struggling with God all the way along. And I think in this, like what you see is his heart being tempered and softened, shaped, ready to fulfill the blessing that God is going to give him. And he's been living in this really small story. He wants a birthright because he wants to accumulate more wealth or prove himself better than his brother. And this is the thing, like, sorry, back to Hamilton. Like he ends up taking, Burr ends up taking Hamilton's life in this like rage to try to prove himself. And you see it in such brokenness, this small story where he set this person up as his opposition. If I can just beat him, then I will be happy. And it's such a lie. It's such a small story. If Jacob can just beat Esau and he fights him all night and he wins only to realize it's such a small story. And God speaks into him a name much greater. And I think so often in life we do this. We fight against opponents that are just too small or the wrong object for us. That person where we're like, ah, if it wasn't for them, everything would be great. Do you have somebody like that? If it wasn't for that one person at work, or it wasn't for that one family member, everything would be okay. 
the one person I'm at odds with or the one person that's trying to hold me down. Gosh, and we will waste so much energy fighting against that person. And what we don't realize is that really we're fighting with ourselves. And we have a God who's so patiently pushing back against us, shaping us, tempering us. And Jacob's never the same. He's going to walk with a limp after this. He gets wounded, as it turns out, by God. And sometimes that wound is part of it. My daughter and I, years ago, were taking a martial arts class. And um, some of you are going to know the person that I had to spar with. Does anybody know Tom Hale? He's massive. And this was my sparring partner. And uh, and when we would spar, it, it's kind of a rush, and it's also terrifying. And um, but you're going to get in there. I'm going to get in there with this guy. He's like a deep water swimmer. He's like a bull. And like we'd like they'd tell us like go like 40 percent, right? But like one time Tom hit me and just cracked my ribs. But I hit him in the face before that, so <laughs> I like feel like I won. But man, I limped after that. And Tom would always be like, yeah, Jeff, just go full, full power at me. And I'm like, I can't. I'm, I'm a lover, not a fighter. Um, but, but in this place, I mean, it's so interesting, like the fight or the wrestling, like it's, in some ways, it's so revealing of who we are. And Jacob fights with everything he's got. He wins against a God who has restrained himself. And then, is wounded, his name identified. And Jacob says, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Jacob wins, but he loses, but he wins. And I think so often our lives are like this, that this is the way that God works in our lives. And I think probably a number of us bear wounds from some of the suffering or the struggles, things that we go, God, you could have prevented that or we could have avoided that or why wasn't there a way around that? Why didn't you protect me from that thing? And I think there is just brokenness in the world and there just is evil in the world. But oftentimes I think with this God who does this work in us allows us to get wounded because he's doing something deeper and there's a humility that comes and a dependence that comes in the woundedness. A deep gratefulness for who God is. A respect for the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this blessing comes and this blessing is going to be passed on through Joseph all the way down through David, all the way down till Jesus. Jesus is the actual blessing in this story. And it's a blessing for the world that this birthright is connected to God himself coming into this place and being wounded for us. Jesus is the answer to this story. And in all these broken people, Isaac, the favoritism that he shows to one son versus the other, Jacob and all his own insecurities, all these broken people all the way down to one perfect person who takes all that woundedness on himself and is defeated 
a God who continues to restrain himself. The, in the lectionary, the other New Testament passage that's, that's given here is in the transfiguration. And what you see, and I'm not going to go into that story for time's sake, but um, in the transfiguration, you see the power that Jesus has revealed in a moment as he lets down his restraint. We know that Jesus, when he came, had emptied himself. But I think in so many ways, Jesus holding back as his disciples are like, when are you going to engage? When are you going to fight back? And he's like, if I wanted to, I could. But Jesus in this place shows himself as the one who is defeated for the sake of victory. I like how Frederick Buechner calls it a magnificent defeat, the cross, who absorbs all of that and comes out on the other side, bestowing the blessing to us all. And as we sit here on like this side of the veil, God is doing this deep work in us. Tempering us, shaping us, perfecting us so that we can be like Jesus as well. I love how in 1 Corinthians 13, these familiar words says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. I love this. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What we find is that this wrestling with God is where we find our longings met. And although... We'd get glimpses of it in this life. We have this promise that the deepest longings, not only are we being healed, but we're being drawn towards those longings. To go after God, to search after God, to wrestle for God, even if we limp afterwards is worth it. Because what we get is God himself. A God who shapes us with his love and then calls us to love in the same way. Some questions, and then we're going to go to the Lord's table for our communion. Question one, I said, ask yourself, what are the false enemies I'm battling with? And what lies beneath those struggles? What am I striving for? What am I trying to prove? What am I going after? What am I trying to prove to myself? Number two, how might God be inviting you to engage instead with him? Instead of fighting them, what if you get in that ring with God and he's like, come at me, come at me. What questions would you ask of him? What is the blessing you are truly seeking? Number three, do you bear any wounds from God? Maybe disappointments or loss. Some of these we might never fully understand in this life. But how might these wounds remind you of your own fragility and dependence on him? How might they reflect God's grace to lead you more and more fully into who you truly are? 
It's said that in heaven, God gives us a stone with our true name on it. I just think, what a beautiful picture that God in each one of you sees right into that heart something precious.